0: Good
1: morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Tuesday, June 26th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, well, it's a full one, folks. we got Chef Andre Rush, Army retiree, White House chef, and a guy who's become, well, social media famous because... I don't know how you picture your typical White House chef, but Chef Rush's 24-inch biceps caught the attention of the public after White House reporter Kate Bennett tweeted out a photo of uh, some White House chefs preparing for a post-Ramadan feast. Andre Rush came in to talk to us about his Army career as well as his time at the White House and his upcoming books and what he hopes to do to help veterans both... Live a better life, get healthier, and just have a better time as they live post-service. So we've got him coming up, and then, of course, it is Tuesday, and that means Hill Vets will be in the house. Justin Brown, founder and CEO of that organization that's working to get veterans more involved in the political landscape, get them onto congressional staffs, get them into positions here in Washington, D.C. Hill Vets is doing that each and every day, and each and every Tuesday they come in here to talk to us about the latest and greatest political Items taking place on Capitol Hill. Speaking of which, we'll be joined by the Executive Director of DAV, Gary Augustine. Gary's going to call in and talk to us about some recent legislation that went through. That's a long time coming and something we've talked about on this show many, many times. Blue Water Navy Agent Orange exposure legislation passed last night. We're going to talk to Gary about the importance of this, how many people are affected, and how the DAV community is responding to it. So all of that. And of course, so much more coming up on today's show, starting with the introduction of super producer Jake Hughes. Good morning, Jake. How are you doing today? Sore, but good. How good are you, Lord, Eric? Why are you sore? Wow. What uh, happened? I went to a
2: gym yesterday and it's weird because I decided I want to get in better shape, Right, but I don't
1: necessarily know where to start. Is so it because I... Chef Rush was in here yesterday?
2: No, it's because I'm it's because I'm tired of being fat. Yeah, That's me too. Why. So I went to this gym where they have personal trainers. Okay, and the one of them worked me out really well to kind to see where I'm at, and it was a good workout. I'm I'm not I'm the uh, good kind of sore, not the oh my god life sucks sore. Yeah. But then they sat me down for the pricing ninety one
1: dollars per session. Oh, I thought you were going to say a month. I was like, "That's a great deal." No, their their lowest package
2: twenty four sessions over two thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So, see, no,
1: thank you. I I do the the jujitsu as I've talked about on here Brazilian jujitsu specifically, and it, it's a monthly fee that you pay. Actually, I think it's a is it a monthly fee? Yeah, I think it's a monthly fee, and I think it's like. $200 a month or something like that for as many classes as you could go to classes six times a day, go to jujitsu classes, kickboxing classes, uh, or MMA classes, anything that you wanted to go to, you could go to as long as you pay that, but $90 a session for a personal trainer, my goodness. That's, yeah, it's uh,
2: ridiculous, so I've just decided I'm just going to find a gym that's worth like 10 bucks a month or something like that. You know, those, those uh, lifting.
1: what do you call them, those like Planet Fitness type places yeah, exactly. and stuff like that, they don't cost a lot, and there's... Oftentimes, those places have people on staff that are there to help you out. There are more um, expensive gyms, and sometimes being more expensive is better, but I don't know necessarily if... If that's like the typical rate for a personal trainer, Uh, we're actually going to talk to a personal trainer who's serving in the Navy Reserves tomorrow. Her name is Tori Scotty, And there's actually an article with six fitness tips from her for veterans to get back into shape that just went up on the website yesterday. Just a coincidence that Jake happened to go to the gym the same day. (laughs) One thing that she's actually doing that I've learned about, she's doing personal training uh, online. She's actually, like, doing some personal training while talking to people, which uh, is pretty interesting that, you know, technology is now allowing us to do that stuff. But, yeah, the price can be an issue. Like, I remember up in uh, New York, I wanted to start training um, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu back then, but the price difference in New York as compared to Maryland, where I train now, um, although I haven't been there in, like, almost a month. I was going to go last night, and then I ended up having some – some stomach cramps that kept me from going because, you know, apparently that's a thing that happens. So hopefully on Wednesday I'll get back to it. But uh the the cost up there, it was like twice as much as it is down here. And that was uh that was a bit much for me, especially at the time with a new baby and all the money that you spend on that. I mean, my diaper budget was cutting into things, man. <laughs> Couldn't could and listen, I can deal without jujitsu. I can't deal without diapers when you had a when you had a baby in the house. But yeah, it's certainly a um it's a difficult thing because it's, it's it's it doesn't need to cost you anything to get back in shape. Like at my uh, complex where I live, there's a gym. There's nothing stopping me from going over and getting on that treadmill with the lone exception of uh, I hate getting on a treadmill and I don't like running for running's sake. I like competition.
2: Yeah. See, my problem is that I just have grown sick and I know this is going to be shock because I was a drill sergeant, but I've grown sick and tired of pushups and sit-ups. Oh like, yeah, I, I well, just and like, sit-ups I, aren't
1: even good for you. They most personal trainers now tell you like don't do sit-ups. You do crunches. Sit-ups mess up your back, which maybe that's part of why my back is
2: all jacked yeah, up. But like I did push-ups every almost every day for thirteen years. I need something else. I need something. I need to use equipment because the problem is I want to get in shape, but it's got to be something that catches my attention and gets me involved. Yeah. If it's just just I can't do endless push-ups because it just.
1: It gets boring. Yeah. See, I could play basketball all day. I'll go out there and play softball. Anything that has competition involved, a score, or in jiu-jitsu, just you trying to best somebody else and get get better yourself. And I understand you're, 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 you're racing against yourself when you're out there on the road or on the treadmill. It, great, but I don't care. I don't like that. I like being able to say, like, ha I'm better than that person. Or, ha-ha, that person's better than me, and I'll be able to catch up to them if I keep working at it.
2: Nah, see, I don't have a competitive bone in my body. I'm I am the biggest pacifist Aha, in the world. I'm better than that guy at being competitive.
1: Yeah. See? There it is, right there. That's how competitive <laughs> I am. Oh god, my son, he's got it too. Like he likes to uh, when we get home and take off our shoes, then he likes to race up the stairs. The few times that I've uh, not let him win, oh boy, there is a there's been a fallout from that basically. It's it's he loses his mind. Like, "No!" He's it's not a good winner, so we're going to get him involved in sports this fall, and hopefully, uh, he'll learn how to uh, lose with a little bit more grace and <laughs> dignity than throwing himself on the floor and screaming like he does now. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, you know, that's that's a big step though, going out and doing that, even if that gym isn't the right one for you. Maybe, maybe the Planet Fitness or one of those other gyms are, or maybe uh, uh, the. Um, uh, you know, that there are different programs out there for veterans that can help defray gym costs as well. Although yeah. I did just hear about uh, Lift for the 22 has some, uh, they've changed what they're doing. They basically found out that giving the free gym memberships to veterans that they were doing, like 85% of those veterans never used the gym memberships or something like that. They posted on Facebook. So uh, they've changed up uh, exactly what they're doing. And maybe, uh, and I think it had something to do with starting to do like group meetups and actually having like PT sessions. Is that something that you think might work for you? Actually, absolutely. If, I, with if, I'm,
2: if I'm part of a group, that'd be a great thing for
1: me. You're an army retiree, man. Why don't you just show up at the base and be put on a PT belt, put on your old PT gear and be like, all right, who wants me to join them? Let's go. Hughes yeah. is
2: back, baby. You'll see my gigantic gut and be like, wow, he must be National Here, Guard. Instead
1: <laughs> Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> uh, instead of wearing the army t shirt that you wear, it's I mean you guys still wear the gray t shirts with no, army. no. N- now it's them? black and yellow. Oh, of course it is. So uh, just get one that says retiree, <laughs> Army retiree, <laughs> instead of just Army, and they'll be like, ah, there he is. You could be that guy who shows up to the base and is just still a part of everything. Just walk
2: up to my old unit and go,
1: hey, guys, what we doing for PT this morning? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, I. Oh, God, I remember that happening. I remember a guy who retired on the USS Saipan when I was from there and would still show up to, like, the PRT and PT sessions and stuff like that. Oh, it was weird. It was weird. There was a lot of weird PT related stuff on that ship. <laughs> One was that uh, there was a Marine Corps officer, a combat cargo type guy. So uh, on amphibious assault ships, the I think the only Marine that's permanently assigned to the ship is the combat cargo officer. So the guy who onload's and offloads, he's in charge of all that. This guy would run each heat of the PRT, the physical readiness test, which uh, when you're talking about a ship that has, I don't know, 1200 people on it or something like that, you run it in like 8-9 heats something like that. He would run each and every one of those mile and a halves and would be smoking a cigar while he did it. <laughs> just because he was that hardcore and boy was he. Uh, you know, there's uh there's A lot of ways to get into shape, but it's not easy to take that first step. And like when I started doing jujitsu, it was great. But then over the last few weeks between my wife traveling, which she's on travel again this week, my wife traveling, me having some uh, some like minor illness issues where I don't want to go and get everybody else sick. And then I got a cut on my hand and I don't want to get a staph infection. Even though I feel like they were legitimate reasons not to go, they feel like excuses after a while. Like last night, I probably could have forced my way through it and gone last night, but I was just like, you know what? I don't feel right and I don't, I, I feel like it's just gonna stink too much. But I think once I get back to it, hopefully tomorrow, if I'm able to get a babysitter tomorrow night and get back to it and get over there, then it'll get right back into it where I need to be there three days a week and do that stuff. So that's my hope. I'm definitely going on Friday. Which is also the best day, because that's the day where uh even the lowly white belts like me get to do some uh some competitive uh, you know, try to escape from you're not trying to choke too many people out, but you're trying to escape from somebody and things like that. So uh yeah, that's uh it, it's it's tough to do, but you've taken the first step, man, and that's the biggest thing. And if you'd like, I can give you Chef Rush's email and I'm sure he'd uh, like you to uh come out and do some powerlifting with him and everything. Sure. He bench presses seven hundred pounds when he wants to, but As you'll find out when we talk to him in just a little while, White House chef Andre Rush, Army retiree, he can bench 700 pounds, but he doesn't do that very often. He lifts smaller weight uh, totals, higher repetitions, that's part of flexibility and endurance, which is what he's all about. And you're going to find out when we talk to Chef Andre Rush, the most swole White House chef that there is. (laughs) That's our next interview coming up here on The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. And we actually have a video on what he thinks the first step is. If you want to have, you know, really muscular physiques like both he and I have, then what's the first step that you take? Hey, now what? It's totally accurate. This is radio. No one can see me. So, you know, They don't know. But if you go to our Facebook page, you can actually see pictures (laughs) of me and my identical twin separated at birth, Chef Andre Rush, and a little video that we shot with him. He was able to visit us yesterday. It's airing today, but uh, he was in studio yesterday. So pretty cool video. One of the comments on that video, or I think the the only comment on the video that we had on our page, a whole bunch of people saw it. I think most people were too intimidated to say anything (laughs) on it. The, the lone comment that was up there yesterday was, my God, those arms are bigger than my minivan. How many kids can you fit inside those things? And ridiculously big arms. So we're going to talk to Chef Rush coming up in just a little bit, as well as Justin Brown from Hill Vets and Gary Augustine from DAV. A full show today, the full two-hour show today. Normally we're, uh, we do the hour and a half, but we have the ability to flex to a two-hour show. So we are going to do that today. We're also going to talk more about some of this news taking place around the country. And there's a story up on ConnectingVets.com by Jonathan Kopanger. The title of that story, Bad News for Commissaries is Good News for Veterans. So sales at the Defense Commissary Agency, DECA as it's known to some, they've dropped about 20% over the last five years, Jake. So they're trying to figure out how to get back that 20% that they lost. Here's what's been asked of Congress. And this doesn't affect you because, as I said just a little bit ago, you're a retiree. You can go shop at the commissary in the exchange. You can go shop wherever you want. But I can't. I did 13 years, but I didn't retire, so I'm unable to shop at the exchange in person. I can shop there online as of last Veterans Day. Uh, I cannot shop at the commissary, that tax-free commissary shopping. Well, Congress has been asked to open shopping to all veterans, not just retirees. So it doesn't sound like it's going to get done this year. I mean, we're already in June, so while that can sound like, oh, it's going to be another year, it, it may not be that long. Uh, it's it's looking like there's a possibility that this could come online sometime in the fairly near future. Now, vets with honorable discharges, of course, can shop at the exchange portals, shop my exchange, my Navy Exchange, and shop CIGX, which is the Coast Guard Exchange. There's also a Marine Corps uh, Exchange one that's kind of separate from the Navy Exchange. But anyway, you just have to verify your eligibility. I did it within a couple minutes on Veterans Day. Checked it out. I actually, did some Christmas uh, shopping in comparison on that site and got some pretty good deals through the exchange. Um, it's not always going to be a better deal at the exchange. That's what we learned last year. You just need to compare and contrast. Listen, if you can find a better price at Amazon, there you go. And the thing is, the exchange does do some price matching, just like they do at the uh, at the uh, the the hard locations, I guess you would call them the actual locations. but, There's a way that DOD has come up with this year to allow Purple Heart recipients and those with service-connected disabilities, former POWs, and their caregivers to shop at the commissary. There are two bills working their ways through Capitol Hill right now, according to Jonathan's story. The main difference is that the house version would also open MWR facilities to veterans. That would be pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah. You know, having the ability to go to the gym, the movie theater, basically anything that MWR does. Here's a good example of where that could be beneficial down in uh, Florida. I remember coming. I I was, I had already left Florida and PCS, but then uh, went back there to visit with some friends and uh, wanted to take a young lady down to a theme park. Wanted to go see specifically. We got tickets to see blue man group. And we went to, uh, I don't know if we went to universal studios or where we went, but anyway, got the tickets through MWR and they were like dirt cheap compared to what they would have been uh, buying them off the street or whatever. That could be a, certainly a big benefit. Now, This would come with a caveat. So, Jake, you don't pay anything to be able to shop at the commissary as a retiree, right? Right. As long as you have your ID card, you are good to go. Now, the most recent proposal that's come from DOD actually has a user fee that's between 1% and 5% of what? I'm not 100% sure. But uh, in order for the non-core groups to use the commissary, even with that... Overall savings are typically 23.7% over civilian stores. So some things aren't going to cost any less, but you are going to have um, no taxes added on to them, which can be a big deal. And some things do cost less over there. And I live pretty close to a, a big army base, so this is something that would be beneficial for me. Unfortunately, it's not going to be beneficial for everybody. You know, there are those who live in places where there's not a military facility with a large exchange or commissary or anything like that. But I don't know. As someone who is able to shop at the commissary, do you or do you go to a civilian grocery
2: store? I go to a civilian grocery store. Just more convenient for yeah, you? Yeah, more convenient. I need to start shopping at the commissary just because, you know, tax adds up after a while. And they have a decently good selection of the commissary on Fort Myers.
1: Commissaries tend to be just about as good as the local you know, grocery stores, with a few exceptions. There's some bases I've been to where you went to the commissary and you were like, ugh, this is kind of weird. Some of them, it feels like you've gone through a time portal. Like, you walk in and you're (laughs) like, oh, is it 1974 again? Like, what is going on with this color scheme and why is the lighting so bad in here? Um, But there are, and and there are differences between commissaries. I remember being stationed down in, uh, in the Norfolk, Virginia area. So there are... I don't know, 25, 30, 40,000 military bases down in the Hampton Roads area. And the best commissary was at the Air Force Base, which was, uh, oh, God, is it Langley that's over there, I think? Dan? I think so. Yeah, so anyway, wh- whichever Air Force Base it is, had far and away the best commissary. You'd just go there, and they had a better selection. They had stuff cheaper than other places. It, it was fantastic. So we would drive the extra distance to go there. They also had a really nice liquor store over there, their cat what do they call it a cat what uh cat six cat, yeah there you no, go no no
2: no, it's uh cat
1: five
2: no it's six but i'm afraid it's not cat six it's the uh i can't remember off the top of my
1: head yeah whatever it is uh, in the navy we just call it the class six class six there you go uh in the navy we just call it like the the exchange this doesn't have a different <laughs> name like we don't separate it sometimes it's even in the same building um we would go over there for that. So you know, because we had the co- the local commissaries near us, it just weren't as good. They weren't as nice. There were the army bases, there were the navy bases, the air force base. Surprise of all surprises, tended to have the nicest <laughs> facilities. Um, you know, that's okay. They get promoted a lot slower in the air force, so they get to enjoy those facilities. Uh, after, you know, 15 years when they finally get promoted to staff sergeant and put on that E5 rank and they finally have enough money to shop there. Um, Yeah, I think it could be beneficial. And, again, with us, having that option, that's the key these days is options. And if they open it up, enough people are going to say, like, all right, yeah, I'll do that because I know people who live around me who are veterans but aren't retirees, so they can't go to Fort Meade right now and shop at the commissary or the exchange there. Uh, they, I'm sure some of them would take advantage of it, a percentage. And if it's uh, you know enough of a percentage to make up for those sales that have dropped 20% over the last five years, that would be a net positive for the commissary. The issue is, as it always is, access, base access. And that's the question that you'll hear a lot of people talk about. But here's the thing. If you do not have a security clearance, if you are just your average sailor, soldier, marine, airman, your average retiree who probably doesn't have a security clearance, what's the difference between them being issued an ID card and a veteran being issued an ID card? Is there anything that proves that a that a retiree is less of a threat than your average veteran? Nope. No, of course not. So as long as you know, you're know you able to verify that this is the person who earned that uh, uh, veteran status, I don't see what the problem is, particularly it's the honorable discharge. You're not going to be able to get it with an OTH, so you won't be bumping into Spencer Rapone at the, uh, the commissary <laughs> or the exchange walking around in his uh, Rage Against the Machine t-shirts and uh, railing against the man. That's not going to happen, uh, but... You know, I think that 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 discussion, that base access discussion, as far as the security aspect, I think it's a bit overblown because, listen, we give retirees access to the base. They're no more or less likely to be a threat to base security than a veteran is Um, in general, I would say percentage-wise. Overall numbers-wise, of course, there are more veterans than retirees, so you're going to have more issues there. Where I do think it can be a problem is at certain bases— that have a huge population and already have traffic issues and already have parking issues that's where i could see it becoming an issue i don't know what the bases uh, in northern virginia are like jake you live there you live uh, you, yeah parking
2: is normally at a premium on these places
1: so if you add particularly in an area like this or like san diego or norfolk or jacksonville or i uh, pick what what like fort hood houston fort that hood, area yeah. Huge Army focus there, uh, you know, whether you're talking about like Fort Leavenworth, whether you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, the Marine Corps when you go down to Pendleton or where, I mean, there are these places where you have a massive military concentration and because of that, or in addition to that, I should say, a massive veteran concentration that could become a problem for the base as far as the weight to get on the base for people who are trying to go to do a job and it's just me. <laughs> I want to get some uh, some Cheetos from the commissary and I don't want to pay taxes on them. That's a discussion that I think merits some uh, some sort of uh, some sort of uh, discussion, I guess. A discussion that merits some sort of discussion. An issue <laughs> that merits some sort of discussion certainly when it comes to the base access thing, where it's possible or feasible maybe having a separate entrance for the commissary and the exchange is one way to do it so that you're not affecting base operations. So you can still have access to the commissary and exchange through the base, but also have an external like, you know, drive up gate to the commissary and the exchange and all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's something that they need to find a way to make up that money because if they keep losing money, the commissary is going to go the way of the dodo. It's not going to exist anymore. And then no one is going to have access to it. So for those who worry about the traffic issues on base and those who think it's a security issue, Listen, man. uh, It's either that or no one has the commissary and the exchange and all that stuff. Now, the uh, exchange—I believe that this is only about the commissary, not about the exchange. I think they're two separate entities. Yeah, the exchanges are are different. Deca is uh, totally a. um See, and that's what. Yeah, we're going to have to correct something in this story, actually. But uh, they are two separate entities, and that's why you don't have you know food shopping at the exchange. They're always. Often, often in the same building, but two separate places with separate cash registers and all that stuff. Uh, some exchanges will have a small food selection in them. Like in Suda Bay Crete, where I was stationed, all we had was a tiny little exchange. And that's where our food was. It's where our everything was. Like, that Yeah, was some the of them are place. like gas stations where you can, bu- they can buy like yeah. frozen dinners It was a mini mart, essentially, yeah. is what we had. A mini mart that also had an electronics section, essentially, is what it was. <laughs> that's where I bought my first HDTV. I ordered a... Uh, we were going to have a stand down that I organized for a Christmas that basically uh, everyone was working like two days on, three days off, two days on, three days off. And uh, we figured out a way to do that. And I, I organized a schedule to do it. So I was going to have a lot of free time. So I got a new Xbox with the HD and I was like, oh, I don't have an HD TV. I still had like a 200 pound CRT TV. I actually went and bought a uh, uh, my first HD TV at the little electronics section of the Bay Mini Mart. And it was a good TV that I think we still have in our house. I don't think we use it anymore, but I think we still have it. (laughs) Well, what we are going to use today is our conversational muscles because we've got a lot to talk about with a lot of fantastic people. Coming up in just a minute, we are going to play our interview with Chef Andre Rush. He has gone viral on Twitter because of a picture taken by Kate Bennett, CNN White House reporter, that showed some White House chefs preparing for a post-Ramadan feast. And people said, Who is that monster? Chef Rush has the proportions of an action figure, a muscular one. You remember those old He-Man? You remember He-Man dolls? Yeah. That's kind of what he's built like. And he's and it's all natural. I mean, this is just it's incredible what the guy does. And it's incredible the career that he's had and what he's doing to try to help veterans and some books coming out. Going to talk to him in just a moment. And then later, Justin Brown of Hill Vets, followed by executive director of DAV, Gary Augustine, talking about the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange legislation that went through just last night. You're listening to The Morning Briefing, Tuesday edition. Eric Dame and Jake Hughes here with you, and we'll be back in just a moment with Chef Andre Rush, Army retiree, White House chef, and gigantic, wonderful human being. Back after this.
2: Helping military veterans stay connected.
0: We make it easy.
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. ConnectingVets.com. Every day,
0: online and all over social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets.
1: Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Tuesday edition, June 26, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com, that's your website. Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms. Audio, well, if you're listening to this, you know that we have it. Print articles Tons of them Benefits in My Backyard From Jonathan Copanger You should check that out If there's not an article On your home state yet There's one coming Also great video content That's up there as well Like my conversation With Joe Schinelli Executive Director of AmVets About the changes Coming to TRICARE And what can be done About them By the veterans And retirees Who would be affected All of that is available At ConnectingVets.com And by following us On social media Where we are At ConnectingVets On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Army, an Army retiree, in fact. He's also popped up on quite a few websites recently after a picture of him at the White House went a little bit viral, possibly because, well, his arms are ridiculously large. And he knows that, we know that, and now the world knows that, as he's been featured on TMZ Inside Edition. He's going to be on Good Morning America probably coming up, all sorts of places where Chef Andre Rush is showing up. And right now, he's showing up in the morning briefing studio. Chef Rush, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, pleasure to be here. So, first question for you is, as I mentioned, you served in the United States Army, <laughs> retiring, actually, from the Army just over uh, a year and a half ago. Tell us a little bit about your military career, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were serving in the Army.
3: Well, I um I retired, uh, I did 23 years in military, um, from Mississippi, Columbus, the hospitality state. So, that's where I get my humbleness and all my care. You know everything from uh, my mother. Um, I uh, I was infantry. I did a array of different things in the military, and finally wound up doing what I love as my passion, which is food service. Uh, I became a chef at a, uh, just by whim. Loved it. Picked up every aspect of it, uh, from the ice master ice carver to pastries to anything you could possibly think of, cakes. This that I just just went along with it and just loved the ride.
1: Now, I think when a lot of us think of military food service, and I know you know this question is coming, we think of some soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, standing around a big pot and throwing a whole bunch of stuff in there and just boiling it until it's not deadly anymore and then throwing it on a tray for us. In your journey through the the culinary specialty world in the Army— Is that kind of how it starts out? Do you start off just with kind of the mass production of cooking, then move into the more detailed and and fine arts
3: aspects of it? So you do start off with the mass production. Uh, As a matter of fact, when I first actually joined and switched over, the mass production was something that I had to get used to. You know, I'm a pretty active person. I wanted to be challenged and and explored and so forth and so on. But later on, uh, that opportunity came up to me. So um, uh, from there, my whole being in the military was for me to actually train each and every last individual that didn't have the opportunities that I had. So I did classes with thousands of people from the CIA to individuals, uh, whether it be an enlisted aides or whether it be just a quartermaster. So I just went around and we also have what's called the the Fort Lee uh, quartermaster, the competition every year. That's held it for Lee. Uh, I'm on the USACAT team, which United States Army Culinary Arts team, which you have the trial for, which give the guys great, you know, influence to come out and explore their means and whatnot. Uh, but uh, it is it's different, so it is a transition, it just as having overnight,
1: right? And of course, after 23 years, all good things must come to an end. You serve in the army for 23 years, uh, mostly in that culinary specialty, as you said, that you kind of kind of came to that after doing infantry and other things. What do you remember about, you know, when you finally realized, hey, it's coming to an end. Tomorrow's the day I take off that uniform for the last time. What do you remember most about that time a year and a half ago when you were coming up on the end of your time in the Army? Um,
3: reminiscing. It, it was, um, I was I was proud. I was happy I served, uh, even more so the people that I served with, beside people I lost, people that were still there uh, beside me. Uh, it was humbling. Um but the only thing I kept thinking about was how can I still give back? Mm. You know, so even after I separated, I my whole journey and caveat was to actually just give back and profile the military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines as a joint forces, which I've always been used to and a part of because uh, of my mixed branch service with family. And um, and to now I still feel like I'm still doing the same thing that I was doing in the military, but on a bigger scale. Right.
1: When it comes to the military and transitioning out, some jobs, like mine, I was a Navy mass communication specialist and journalist, translates pretty well into this job. Chef translates pretty well into a number of jobs in the culinary industry or just the food industry in general, the restaurant industry. Is that kind of what you're looking to give back through via your expertise in that culinary industry? Um,
3: I'll give back questions. of course, uh, chef. chefing is, is good. I love food service. But the way I actually gave back in chefing was because I was part of the Wounded Warriors. I transitioned over. I was a um, um uh, at the WTU. Uh, we all have issues, some more greater than others, but it's not to be signified because no matter how big or small it is, they're all impactful to that individual person, and it's all the same. Uh, so I use my cooking as a mean to help cope with some of the things that I was going through. And I taught that to a lot of my guys who was actually food service, not food service, no matter if there was rangers, this, that, and so forth. Um, We sat down and we cooked together. And we cooked stuff that made your mind just go crazy. You had to think about, and you wanted to bring it home to your wife, your husband, your spouse, whatever, kids, and become interactive. And that was my part of giving back. So now I want to do this. Of course, we're joining with the USO and, you know, Military Times and all of these wonderful organizations that, or that don't get enough credit. I mean, they of course they get credit, but right. if I could just do an endless supply of thank yous, I would.
1: We're speaking to Chef Andre Rush. He is a veteran of the United States Army, retiring after 23 years in service just about a year and a half ago. And now, as I mentioned, you kind of came to uh, public attention fairly recently when Kate Bennett, who's a CNN reporter at the White House, tweeted out a photo of some White House chefs getting ready to serve some food. And people went, Who the heck is that guy? And why are his arms so gigantic? Did you Photoshop this photo? She said, nope, it's Chef Rush. What did you think when that photo popped out on social media and you started getting attention from the likes of TMZ, Inside Edition, CNN itself, all these people reaching out to you, uh, were you surprised that that
3: happened? Uh, I was surprised that it happened because I didn't expect a photo to be taken. (laughs) (laughs) She caught me off guard. If you notice, I wasn't looking at the photo. (laughs) You're just kind of standing there. I was just kind of sitting there doing my job. And before, you know, we got back into, uh, we went beside the White House. It had went all over and she came out and she said a couple words to me i kind of chuckled because i never had twitter before uh, <laughs> and um it it, it went crazy it, it reached all over the world i had people hundreds of people contacted me and i was it was very humbling and it made me feel pride uh it, it made me you know they thanked me they for your service i mean i just the last today was the last day one guy said thank you. It was just overwhelming, but it was unexpected. This is me all the time. And that was on a bad day, so I hadn't been in the gym in like a month. <laughs> so I thought I looked really kind of small there. Well, the one photo with the the three chefs standing
1: around, uh, it looks like as you're preparing a dish there, maybe
3: pineapple, it looks like. Uh, uh, that's that?
1: pettapan. Okay. pan is baby squash. Okay. Well, I can't tell the difference because <laughs> it's just food is food to me. It looks delicious though. And you're standing there and in that photo, the way I described it to people, when I told them, have you seen this photo? Do you remember in the movie The Green Mile how they used <laughs> they used photo tricks to make Michael Clark Duncan look that much bigger than yes, everybody exactly. else? This is no photo trick. This is just you standing sideways and the arms are out there. So, let me ask about that before we ask about uh, the work that you do at the White House, physical fitness and bodybuilding and weightlifting. When did you get into that? Was that something you got into while you were in the army or did it come to you beforehand?
3: Um, mostly so I I had a, a track scholarship. I was a runner. I played football which was my thing was my speed. I was very fast. Um, but I worked out periodically, but I didn't have the skill sets that the people uh, today, you know, the younger generation, we had to kind of learn from books and whatnot. But I've always been a physical fitness type of person. I've always been, you know, challenge me. Let's compete. Let's do it. It's fun and keep going. Of course, I can't work out five days a week. If I work out three days a week, I'm, a, I'm content. mm
1: and that's really all it takes to get that big. So if I take. just start working out three days a week, I'm going to have 24 inch biceps <laughs> you like maybe this. 20,
3: maybe 20, yeah, yeah, maybe.
1: <laughs> maybe 23, 23 and a half. 21, Let's, 20. 20. Let's just start rolling <laughs> yeah. those numbers down and keep going as we talk to Chef Andre Rush, Army veteran. And as we mentioned, those photos were taken on the White House grounds. How does one come to work at the White House? Working on, you know, as you said, you you work on pastries, you work on food, you do ice carving, you do a number of things. How did it come to be that you were working at the White House? Um,
3: well, my first experience was back in '97 uh, when I came over. Uh, but you have, first off, you got to have a clearance right off the top. Yeah, you know, you, I mean, if your clearance is not up to par, and you have to have a skill set and so forth to get there. Uh, you can't just walk to the White House and not like filling out a piece of paperwork and and just happen. So it takes time. It takes time. It takes patience and waiting and, and so forth. And also, most importantly, you have to have trust. And you have to have a team system, that camaraderie. All of those things are a factor. Even if you have the best skills in the world, if you don't have those other things, you're not going to be part of their team. Right.
1: And I imagine that it's got to be extra for those working with food at the White House because – I mean, what's to stop somebody from putting something dangerous in the food or making a mistake there, or lying about it and getting on there and cooking something improperly? I mean, what's the process like You know, when, when you're showing up to the White House and you realize, I'm going to go into the White House and cook something today or I'm going to go into the White House and prepare something today? Is that <laughs> you, an
3: odd feeling? You know, it's, it's, again, it's very humbling. You can go there a thousand times and you realize where you are and what you're doing and who you're preparing for and so forth, and it is the most extreme thing in the world. I never talk about it, I never I never have talked about it before, mm-hmm. uh, but um, because it's just my job. I'll do my job diligently, cohortly for uh, the White House, and I'll do the same thing from a homeless vet that I'm feeding off the street. So right. it's the same principle applies, but being in the White House is unbelievable. Do you feel that the the media attention that came after Kate Bennett took that photo and put it out there and you
1: popping up on all these places? Are you going to try to leverage that into a way to kind of help veterans even more than you already have been? And how do you think you're going to try to do that?
3: You know, that's a that's a funny question, because someone asked me um, if if God gave you five minutes to do whatever you like, you know, someone said, i would take that five minutes and just have a party and go do this and this. And my five minutes, I would take to try to feed the world. Mm. So uh, most definitely, absolutely, I w- I would. This is something that I could only even imagine. It's not about me. It's not about the White House. It's about the Joint Services and everything, and try to give back. Even on my Twitter, I'm always talking about stay humble, be humble, give back, give back. Challenge me. I do two thousand two hundred twenty-two push-ups every other day wow. uh, for the fallen sailors, sailors, soldiers, and also for the bully teams that's taking their lives and everybody else in this world.
1: There are certainly a lot of things going on uh, that are negative out in this world, but there are also positive things as well. And a good example of that is Chef Andre Rush. When you talk about doing that amount of push-ups, it makes me tired just <laughs> sitting here when you talk about that. As we mentioned, you are are a very in-shape gentleman. You've got those 24-inch biceps and everything. What does it take beyond working going you say? Oh, I go to the gym
3: Monday, Wednesday and Friday But <laughs> when you go to the gym, what kind of workouts are you doing to get in that kind of shape? So I, I'm gonna be honest with you I've had a lot of uh, Speculations, you know, of course with you know illegal substances and so which oh, I yeah. which I cannot do and I would just I, This is my natural state of being people would say it all the time, you know, I was just born this way mm-hmm. uh, so to speak but uh, when I go to gym and when I leave the gym, each time I leave the gym, my body hates me. And I love that my body hates me and it says, okay, you did, this, did your job due diligently. So that's the kind of dedication. I, I'll do 25 to 3,000 reps of one body part or two body parts uh, whenever I do go. So I make accounts each time.
1: Wow. And that is uh, really part of the the problem that the veteran community has is When you're not doing PT three to five times a week, depending on what your job is in the military, you get out. It's almost like a way to rebel against that military service where I I don't have to do it, so I'm not going to do it. It's part of why I have a beard right now. (laughs) What do you think people can do to avoid that as someone who, you know, your body hates you for it. I'm sure there are days where you're like, I don't really want to go there, but I need to go there. What do you think the biggest roadblock is for people who are having that issue, staying in shape when they get out?
3: You know, a lot of people, unfortunately have to get a trainers and so forth. Each and every person that has reached out since this happened, even before this happened, has been hundreds of people. And I take the time to help each and every last one. As far as writing a program, they need a little push, they need a little boost, get a partner to go with, you know, support each other, do something, uh, uh, when people come up and say, I, you can work out all day and night, you know, for years, but if your body shape doesn't change, you know, you want to look good. I look in the mirror and I say, okay, I, I, I look okay. <laughs> you know, and if another person tell me, hey, I, I, I admire your body, I admire this, I admire that. So just get with someone, try. You know, you, you just can't just give it up. It's not even for your looks, but it's for your health. It's for mm. your kids, it's for your family, it's for the next generation. So it carries on and so forth. And of course, you're
1: an interesting person to talk to because you've got the physical fitness aspect down. You're also a chef. So you know that a big part of health, personal and physical health and well-being comes down to what you eat. If you're eating nothing but frosted flakes and candy bars all day, it's probably not going to work out well for you no matter how much time you spend in the gym. What should people be looking for in their diet to also make sure that, you know, maybe they're not going to be as, as muscular as Chef Rush is, but <laughs> they're also not going to turn into the, you know, the, the same story we've heard every,
3: every time where 45, 50 years old veteran dropping dead of a heart attack because they stopped doing ups the day they got out. You know, that's funny because I have a book, um, one of my cookbooks coming out with the Eating for Your Health, and it talks about the dynamics of that from the omegas for people with diabetes, with PTSD, mental health uh, disorders and things like that. Eating is essential. You know, being a nutritionist on that part of it is that that is the beginning part of it. You know, from the carbs, you know, and also knowing how to properly read labels on the back. I have to teach people that they don't understand that. You know, it could be a quarter cup and they'll you they'll take 10 cups of it <laughs> and all of a sudden they have a, a thousand grams of cholesterol and they don't know it and don't realize things like that. So you have to be knowledgeable. We have Google. We have this. We have search engines. Look it up. Ask somebody. Ask me. I don't care. I'll answer any question possible how many times I can, but I would... I just love to see people change. That's my whole aspect. I don't want anything. I just want to see people accomplish their goals. And your cookbook, I imagine, is going to work to help people do that. So, this is a healthy
1: eating cookbook. Is that the the main focus of it, or is it kind of a little bit of uh, the healthy
3: eating as well as a little bit of just the stuff that Jeff Ruster likes to make? It it, it is a little bit of <laughs> it's a caveat, <laughs> off of that for the stuff that I like the healthy things because if people see my 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 tweets and things, they ask me how much do I eat, and I'll eat four whole chickens a day, and I'll eat you know a drink of gallons of waters, and I'll. Eat, I eat a lot. Yeah. So I do. But with knowing that you have to know your body and how to do it, I'm also going to work just as hard. I'll burn 4,000 calories a day, even if I eat 15,000 calories a day. So 3,500 plus, you know, calories is one pound. So mm-hmm. I lose weight. Even since the start, I've lost 15 pounds. Wow. And
1: when it comes to, you know, the Larger people like you who are muscular it takes a lot of fuel so the dietary needs are going to be a little bit different Than for some fat guy like me right I don't need to eat four chickens a day and drink four gallons of water a day. exactly Yeah, that's what it comes down to I, I've had some people ask me and I think some of the guys who were sitting out there saw you come in I saw them looking and they were probably wondering Is this guy a competitive bodybuilder? Is that something that was ever of interest to you or is currently of interest to you as far as You know being someone who uh, who does it not just for yourself but
3: for that competitive aspect? Uh, it, it was never interest of mine. I've been around a lot of bodybuilders, a, right. a lot actually. Uh, you know, Arnold had just recently had called me, and uh, I'm actually going out to Vegas to the oh, Mr. Olympia, so I actually decided to get in shape for that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but um, when I was in Iraq's and I get understand what, and whatnot, I used to do competitions with guys who were really big, and I'm all about endurance. So when I my point being was, it doesn't matter how big you are. Even if I lift 700 pounds, that's that's okay. It's only one time but if I live 225 for 100 reps that's impressive yeah (laughs) you know so I tell it it doesn't matter how big you are it's about what you can do like I can run you know a 1330 or 1339 at 280 pounds you know so it's, it's all about your physical health because the more you more energy you have to exert you have to put that back into your body. That's an interesting thing too. That
1: comes with uh, people who have a more muscular physique. Is also they have te- typically less endurance, partially because of how they choose to get that big buildup of lactic acid. Is one of the aspects of it, and other things going on. Is that something that can be avoided for the people that are looking to be bodybuilders? Can you avoid it by training yourself in that specific way? Ex-
3: absolutely. So I am an endurance trainer. People ask me, "Are oh, you a bodybuilder or are you a powerlifter?" Because you lift so much. I didn't reach out to to lift 700 pounds. That was not my goal. You know, my goal was to lift, you know, when I started lift 315 a couple times, and the first time I picked up 315, I lifted, it was 25 times I did it. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'm on to something. Mm. You know, then my guys also followed suit and did the exact same thing, not 25 times, but they did... Feats that they couldn't do. Uh, so you have to be able to train for it. And that's being knowledgeable, again, of knowing what to do and how to do it. Don't just get a lot of weight, to put it on and just be stiff as a block, you know, <laughs> stretch, run, you know, do things, do the endurance part of it, be flexible. People think that I'm not flexible, but I trust me. <laughs> it's one of those things when people see someone with, with arms like yours they assume
1: well how does How does he eat how is he able to get his hands up to his mouth do his elbows even bend but you're quite flexible I've, I've seen it as you've been sitting there taking <laughs> sips of your water as you said you drink water all day long and as an MMA fan you see some of the uh, the biggest uh, most built guys and you'll see uh, you know casual fans saying like oh look that guy's definitely going to win this fight and I'll sit there and say he better hope he does in the first round because I guess in the <laughs> second or third he's going to be in trouble he's going to be tired but um, how much of a movement do you think there is towards that in the fitness world, towards the endurance and the cardio and having the ability to be functional and not just like some of these <clears throat> bodybuilders from the past who we'd see who literally could not bend their bend their arms all the way?
3: You know, I think that goes to that social media and people just seeing other people, even people looking at me and seeing me. One guy said to me this morning, uh, he thanked me from somewhere in another country. He said, I was going to do a natural substance, but... Listening to you and seeing you, I'm not going to do it now. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And the thing about it is that we kind of get in that stereotype where we want to be that big, big person, but you don't know what comes along with that. You know, your joints, the failure of this and that, stiffness, pains, aches. And so if you know what to do again properly, which will actually be in my book as well, showing about how you can actually do movements and exercises to actually combat, you know, that lactic exit and, and how to make yourself um, was well not like be like me but have the more <laughs> endurance part of it so you can have that second wind so you can run a few miles and not have to worry about it so your cookbook is also going to have physical fitness tips in there and everything. It's going to have it's going to be a array of different things. So I actually have two books and one is a bio, uh, but the cookbook is the one I'm actually uh, focusing on uh, more so. So it's going to be kind of a collaboration of little tidbits of things that people will actually want to know in here. Not like kind of boring typical cookbook. It'll just have caveats inside. Of course, as you talk about putting
1: out a bio and talking about putting out a cookbook, I have to ask you this question as we speak to Chef Andre Rush, chef at the White House, retired United States Army. There was a fake chef at the White House, or a guy who claimed to have worked at the White House. Did you ever hear the story of him? I think his name was Ronnie Seaton put out a book talking about how he was a Medal of Honor recipient and cooked at the White House. (laughs) Do you ever get people questioning you? I mean, you are a muscular, bodybuilder-looking type of guy. You're cooking at the White House. You're retired Army. Do people ever question your background? Uh,
3: People... People question, well, not to my face, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't mind, <laughs> but just not in my face. But everybody has their opinions. Uh, you know, there are dime a dozen. I, I don't really care. Uh, like I said, I, I, I focus on the mission at hand. I'm humble. I stay that way. I choose not to waver from that or anything else of the sort. So to each his own. Uh, but, uh, you know, my credentials speak for themselves, and I have – yeah, it's just it's funny.
1: It's funny that people <laughs> will question just about everything these days. Like pics or it didn't happen. Well, you know what? There's pics of Andre, Chef <laughs> <laughs> Rush at the White House doing his thing. That's kind of how he came into the public eye. If you could go back and have that photo not be taken or be taken, are you happy that it got out there and that you've gotten
3: this attention or are you kind of uh, a little un- uncertain on it? You know, um I'm 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 happy it happened. Uh, just like I said again, if I had five minutes, even if it goes absolutely nowhere, uh, if I reached, you know, uh, I was doing the National Barbecue Challenge yesterday, Saturday and Sunday, and I went through there, and there were a, it was wonderful from the USO sponsored by Giants, but it was absolutely incredible. Everybody stopped, everybody took pictures, and I just my heart uh, melted. And people tell me he said this is what you were meant to do this is what you need to be doing mm-hmm. and and i'm 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 appreciative and humbled by that and it sounds like you're going to get to do some pretty cool stuff. I mean, hanging out with Arnold, the Governator, the Terminator. You're going to get to
1: hang out with him and all those people. Certainly seems like there's going to be a lot of good things coming up in the future for Chef Rush. Already a lot of fantastic things in his past. But again, that bright road ahead of him is looking pretty fascinating and interesting. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. Chef Rush, if people want to find out more about you, keep an eye on your books when they come out and all that good stuff. Where should they go?
3: Uh, well, I have uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And it's The uh, Real Chef Rush. is Chef Rush and Andre Rush. There you go. And those are the ways on social media.
1: And if there is some veteran out there who wants to reach out with, like, you know, send you a message on how to eat or find out, you know, your favorite recipes, or they want to know about healthy living, is it all right for them to contact you of through Of course. Those?
3: Uh, they've already been hundreds, and I've answered each and every last one of them. I will not waver. I won't change, and I will help every person I will. Well, I can tell you. Chef Rush responded to all
1: my emails after our friend Rob (laughs) Wilkins put us in touch and was one of those people who's checking in the morning. I want to make sure that we're good to go for today. That's how you can tell that someone's a veteran. They're checking to make sure, is this the correct time, the correct day? Making sure everything's there. (laughs) Well, Chef Rush, we want to thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much, more importantly, for what you're continuing to do for the military and for veterans uh, after your service. We really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. Back with Justin Brown from Hill Vets after this. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing, Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. Our team, comprised entirely of veterans, is working diligently every day to get the information you should know about, the information you need to know about, the information we think you'd want to know about to live your best veteran life. It's all available at ConnectingVets.com and also on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, YouTube. Our next guest. Is the founder and chief executive officer of an impressive organization that's working to get veterans more involved in politics and also keep them aware of what's happening in politics that could affect them as veterans. I'm speaking, of course, of Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets, who joins us every Tuesday and joins us now. Justin, good morning. How are you today? Doing
4: fantastic. How you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing all right. You know, for a Tuesday, it's not Monday anymore, it Tuesday, so yeah. it's got that going for it. Um, of course, one of the things that HillVets is best known for is getting veterans... Literally involved in politics, getting them onto congressional staffs, placing them with government organizations uh, within Washington, D.C., particularly through the Hillvets House, where you have essentially a fellowship for veterans who are interested in politics to come down. And as I understand it, of course, the Hillvets House has kind of an open, rolling admission thing going on right now. So are you still looking for people? And if people are interested, where do they go and how do they find out about that amazing
4: program? We are always looking for great veterans. And you can find out more at hillvets.org. You can find us on Twitter at Hillvets. Not at Twitter. They changed that. Not at Twitter. Not (laughs) at Twitter. But uh, we're always looking for great veterans who are interested in coming to their nation's capital, making a difference, serving in policy and politics. It's pretty exciting. We place these men and women in a congressional or senator's office, get them up to speed, train them up, and try to get them a full time job.
1: There you go, and for I believe, from what I've I've learned of the program, for the first four months, basically they have free housing in Washington D.C. There's also a small living stipend for them. Then after that, uh, the more additional months they stay, there can be uh, some cost where they a uh, percentage of what it takes to live there and everything like that. But uh, as historically has shown you've had a pretty good track record of getting people into not just these temporary positions but finding people full-time jobs in dc haven't you
4: yeah that's right so we've uh, had more than uh, 10 veterans who've been permanently placed we've helped 35 veterans come through the program and, and almost all of them have landed in permanent work in some capacity in washington dc whether that's working on the hill some decide they actually don't want to work on the hill um after coming here and, and, and end up working for organizations like the american legion uh, DAV and AMVETS, others, uh, do an advocacy work or go work for the federal government at, at, say, the Pentagon or the Department of Veterans Affairs.
1: There are a lot of options to get involved, and that's what HillVETS is all about, getting more veterans involved, getting people to speak up, regardless of party, affiliation, or anything like that. They're just looking to get more veterans into the conversation here in our nation's capital Part of the conversation in our nation's capital as it regards to veterans, of course, is always the VA. And you've been keeping us kind of up to date on this battle between the inspector general's office and the VA and the acting head of the VA. And what's the latest from this? What's going on over
4: there? Yeah, sure. So there there is an interesting what's being called a power struggle in the the news, uh, whereby the acting secretary, uh, the acting secretary is currently Peter O'Rourke. Um, who was, you know, just a little over a year ago, a, a contractor for a, a, a smaller contracting agency, doing a lot of work with the Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, fast forward, this guy's running the Department of Veterans Affairs, and there's been a I'm trying to think of the right word here uh, <laughs> tug of war <laughs> um, in terms of the uh, information that uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs wants to provide. To the Inspector General. Now, for you listeners, the Inspector General's office of the VA uh, has historically been uh, the folks who go and investigate. Uh, you know, any 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 items of concern, people can call a hotline. Um, you know, if you back up a little bit, you, you know, you literally had uh, Congress and, in particular, Republican members of Congress uh, really bolstering the Inspector General's. Um, you know, and trying to give them as much authority as possible funding uh, to really investigate VA because there, you know, were concerns that uh, there, there was misuse in VA, um, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of this boils back to the time of the, the Phoenix VA Medical Center scandal, right? Right. Um, you know, and this call for more li- whistleblowers and, um, you know, highlight concerns within the VA and, you fast forward a little bit and it's a, somebody else's administration and <laughs> suddenly, uh, you know, th- that information swings both ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's 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 interesting to see that uh, the acting secretary is, is essentially from, from what it appears to, to be trying to withhold information um, that that is being requested by the inspector general. And it, it has to do uh, specifically with um a law that was passed um, that, that that really was focused on VA accountability and whistleblower protection. And essentially what that law did was made it easier to fire poor performing VA employees. Right. Um, one of the concerns with this law is and always has been um, how that authority would be used and if it would be used properly with integrity. You know what is the process whereby we're ensuring that you know we're not just firing people maybe because of political beliefs or et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and the federal government, I think, has been known to have you know an extensively. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word here. Impossible. <laughs> You know, once you get a job, it's almost impossible oh, to get rid. Oh, it's
1: tenure in the university system <laughs> where once you've been there for a couple. I mean,
4: that's I a learned, good analogy.
1: I learned from Jonathan Copanger here that when you work at the VA, after you've been there for I think it's three years or four years, you're essentially unfireable. That's what it was before yeah. this. Uh, this new legislation was passed, uh, the the Accountability and Whistleblower Protection yeah. Act. The question, of course, is, and it's a difficult question: who's deciding who's a bad performer? Is it someone who's looking at actual performance? Or is it someone who's saying like, you know what, I want my people in here. I don't like that person. I disagree with them on how the VA should be run or politically or something like that. And that's one of those issues in government. It's been around forever. You know, who's the one making the decision on what is and isn't a bad performer? Because I've been places you know you within commands, within the military, where some civilians there were known to be absolutely useless, but they stuck around because they have friends in high places. So there were sure. Programs in place to get rid of them, but no one did it because, you know, they have buddies that were high up the chain of command.
4: So so these are all the arguments that ultimately won the day. Mm -hmm. The law was passed. Um, but what that doesn't mean is, you know, there's the execution side of this, um, and the execution side of this is, is going to be studied, right? And, and, you know, the, what makes the federal government inherently different than say the private sector, because that's, that's the analogy everybody wants to use, you know, in the private sector, you know, you work at will, if we don't like you, we'll just fire you. Yeah. Problem with that is, is we're in the most loaded political situation and <laughs> Probably, you know, I think most would argue our lifetimes Mm -hmm. um, and where you have just significant um, polar opposites in terms of the political situation, Republicans and Democrats. um, And and it would be like, you know, if we use that private company analogy, you know, this month we're going to go with, you know, the Democrats. We're going to we're going to let them run the company. You know, you guys fire and hire whoever you want. Yeah. And next month it's going to be the the Republicans. You guys fire and hire whoever you want. But at the end of the day, who gets hurt here? It's veterans, mm-hmm. and it, and it's because who who they end up going after is senior career or or potentially the fear is that they they would go after senior career staffers who 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 may have a lot to offer the organization, may not always have popular viewpoints, may not always have um, you know in terms of what they're they think proper policy is that may not be perfectly aligned with uh, political ideology, and and you end up with a very few number of political leadership ideologues. And I don't I don't care what side um, you know at the top, but but really you know VA is kind of a career staff oriented run organization. So you know at the end of the day, the law passed. I mean, it won on all the arguments that we've kind of already gone through. You know that it's impossible to get rid of poor workers. You know, they're basically on tenure, et cetera. But but now that it has passed, what is happening is, you know, VAOIG is looking into, okay, well, how is it being executed? And is it being executed for the right reasons? And to do that, we need information. Um, And what you have here is essentially a refusal to provide information, um, you know, to the point where... Uh, O'Rourke, the current acting secretary, uh, I'm quoting here, lambasted Missel, who's the, the lead of the VAOIG, OIG, uh, describing him and his staff as unprofessional, biased, and reckless. And he went on to say, in your specific case as the VA inspector general, I am your immediate supervisor. You are directed to act accordingly. Um, Congress had a problem with this. Yeah, that's not
3: how it works.
1: That's uh, not, yeah.
4: Inspector generals are
1: like an ombudsman. That's their their job is to be part of the organization, but in a separate chain of command where yeah. the leader can't tell them like,
4: no, you can't investigate me. Well, yeah, they can. You yeah. can certainly be investigated. And, th- and that's the problem. And 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 I think Congress and even the Senate, uh, led by Johnny Isaacson, who's who's a Republican, so we're kind of moving beyond a, what I would argue to some degree. Of, A partisan issue, um, you know, weighed in uh, with uh, ranking member of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee John Tester. Uh, They introduced an amendment to the 2019 VA appropriations bill uh, that passed last night uh, that said none of the funds included in the measure could be used to deny the IG access to agency records and demanding the watchdog quickly notify Congress of any infractions. So. Mm. it's it's been an interesting now turned into a very public spat, um, you know, with 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 the VAOIG, and uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to play out. But it, 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 I think the Senate has certainly made it clear, you know, whose side that they're on. Uh, I think that they certainly view the the power uh, and the integrity of the VAOIG as being, you know, frankly quite important, despite who's in power at any given time.
1: Do you think there's any chance that with O'Rourke being uh, a temporary person in that position, a placeholder essentially, and we'll talk about uh, the likely, it seems, next Secretary of the VA uh, in just a moment here, do you think there's a chance of him saying, like, you know, I'm just here temporarily and there's going to be some crap that's going to come down through this IG report and I don't want it to be blamed on me while I'm here? Do you think that there's some, like, you know, trying to just hold it off so that someone else has to deal with it? Or do you think that this is someone trying to set a – kind of a
4: standard for the VA and trying to change how things are done. Uh, I hate to speculate on right, that right. question, no, it's a uh, you question. know, because, I'm just asking you because, because I, because I don't, I don't know the intent, right. you know, I don't know the motivation. Um, I, I, I do. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that the information is flattering; otherwise, they wouldn't want to withhold it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that's, that's typically true, yeah. right?
4: You know, I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. So, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that you know, um, there's this 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 magic um, political or ideological uh, you know podium that that that, that the acting secretary is trying to stand on as, as, a, as a, to prove a point to the IG. I right. think I think that the information is probably not very good. Um, I don't know what that means I don't know if it means that you know there there may be some clear examples where uh, maybe this new authority was was abused um, I, I'm not sure but i I, I don't think that it's um, and, and you know I don't know that kicking the can down the road would actually be helpful for an acting secretary yeah. I think it might actually be the opposite it might be better for an acting secretary to bite the, the bullet yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because because you know in terms of the broader administration you know you're going to have a new secretary uh you know coming in which by the way uh, that hearing is going to be wednesday afternoon right. um you know where the new secretary is going to be up for consideration and you know so to to walk into you know a new uh, mess or a new you know I don't want to say it's going to be a scandal. I don't know, you know, but but it's certainly something that rose to the level of the acting secretary um, and and they've chose to go down a road of, you know, not providing information versus providing information. and, and, and to be clear, this has happened forever for a long time. Oh, yeah, this is not new. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> slowly providing information to Congress, yeah. to the VAOIG, kind uh, of a government to, tradition, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But what what is new here to be clear is is a secretary openly refusing to provide information to whether it be the VAOIG or Congress um, and then further taking that up a note by by very by insinuating you work for me. Yeah,
1: yeah. And which is <laughs> so, fascinating for someone to tell an IG that. And, of course, that's not the way it works. One funny thing that I did see in there, it's interesting, and this, this could be valid. I'm going to say that the VA might have a point here. They told lawmakers they didn't have the necessary computer software to track most of the information requested. Considering what we know about... Um, the VA, and this is of course really more uh, about the implementation of the implementation of that law. Uh, considering what we know about their computer systems, that's actually kind of believable. So, if that's an excuse that they came up for not providing the information, I think they may have chosen the right one there. Because as we know, there are significant computer issues at the VA, uh, particularly when it comes to communication between DOD and VA, as well as just keeping track of everything within the VA. I mean, I have my personally, I have my medical records lost. 13 years of medical records, brought them to a VA, then when I moved, went to go get them and bring them to another VA because they couldn't do that. And they were like, what are you talking about? We don't have your medical records here. Well, okay, who has them? So that's one of those things, uh, just an interesting thing to notice there. But let's move along to something that's going to have uh, a big effect on uh, quite a few Uh, parts of that organization and I believe directly on people whether they realize it or not on the veteran community and that is the confirmation hearing for Robert Wilkie as you said scheduled to take place tomorrow this is a big deal and what are you looking for in this confirmation hearing I've been hearing most people say it it seems very likely that he'll get through he may get through with uh, as much as the 100 votes to none on the confirmation. What are you looking for? And what do you think those people uh, on Capitol Hill are going to be looking for from Wilkie during the hearing?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, and you know, Robert Wilkie certainly has some positives going for him. And, and one of the bigger things that, you know, we like to highlight certainly as Hill vets is that, you know, to some degree is a Hill vet, right. And he was a former Capitol Hill staffer, um, really, uh, you know, did a lot of work on the Hill. I actually garnered a lot of respect um, from numerous senators. Uh, I know the chair of our advisory board, Chuck Hagel, uh, uh, knows who he is, was aware of his work as a staffer, um, and was impressed with his work, uh, which which certainly got him a nod to get uh, a political appointment over at the Department of Defense, which is where he was prior to coming over and, and being acting at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um so he has a lot of positive things going for him in that that capacity. Um, some of the negatives were the the situation surrounding uh, the David Shulkin uh, firing, you know, or, according to him, the, the the resignation according to the president, right. <laughs> um, uh, and 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 a number of other uh, you know items that kind of kind of led into his being selected uh, to become. Uh, the secretary of veterans affairs. Those also included a lot of legal concerns with regards to, you know, how he was going to be appointed. His paperwork didn't get sent for a long period of time, which was starting to raise flags, which we talked about last week. And right. then, and then the, the same day we talked about this there it, is, boom. There
1: it goes. There it goes. <laughs> if and then you and were listening to the 4 p.m. Replay of the show. You were like, what are they talking about? I already it, went through.
4: today. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and, and so here we are today. And the, the, his hearing is on Wednesday. You know he's going to have to t- face a number of tough questions. I think, um, particularly as it relates to some of the same challenges that David Shulkin ran into, and 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 it's this this tug you know this 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 um, uh, tug of war between uh, what is seen as an administration priority of uh, this this idea that you can completely privatize VA and the the other extreme, which is you know only VA healthcare, no privatized healthcare, uh, etc. So on one side you, you, you have, I think, um, the veteran service organizations who really are looking for a moderate middle uh, whereby, you know, you strengthen VA, make it as strong as you can, get as many uh, great doctors and practitioners into the VA so that you can provide as much care and service out of the VA as possible. Um, and then you use private care services when you can't meet health care needs in-house. Right. Uh, that's, the, that's the VA that the, the, the majority of the VSOs really want. Um, uh, the Democrats uh, really seem to want just to make as strong of a VA as possible, um, are very wary of anything dealing with private sector health care um, are concerned of costs in that capacity, are also concerned with continuity of care. Those are things that some of the the, the veteran service organizations all, also care about. Um, on the other extreme, there's this notion that, you know, we're just going to pr- privatize everything. So the question is, for him, you know, where do you fall in terms of this, this spectrum? Um, and, and I think you know, the right answer for him, you know, going to the Hill is going to be, you know, I don't support privatization of VA, Um, but, you know, we, we saw that with uh, uh, Dr. David Shulkin as well. Um, And that seemed to potentially have been the, the game ender for him in terms of that, you know, he wasn't supportive of fully privatizing VA. In fact, thought it wasn't good policy. Thought it wasn't going to result in better health care outcomes for veterans, and that seemed to be at odds with the administration, and ultimately seemed to have cost him his job. So now that a new candidate's coming in, the question is: Are you going to carry the water on just you know this this straight line privatization thing? When really, frankly, when you talk to the community leaders of the veterans, when you talk to pretty 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 hardline policy folks who you know try to look at things you know, from a, from a what's best for the, the patient um, uh, focus, there doesn't seem to be a lot of support in that community in terms of just providing, you know, pushing everything into private sector healthcare. Right. And part of the, the reason is, you know, uh, you know, and I hate to get back to this and, and bang on this, is American private sector healthcare is pretty broken in and of itself. You know what I mean? So this option is being hung out there as, as if it's some golden grail, and the reality is, is American private sector healthcare is not providing very good healthcare outcomes in its own right. Um, you, in comparison to, to VA, and if you look at there are a number of pretty good studies out there, there are many instances where VA is delivering better health care. But, you know, there are many instances for that rural, you know, veteran who has to travel hundreds of miles where, where it's not. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of, uh, I think challenging dynamics that he has to face, but I think the the biggest question in the room is, is really focused on, you know, what is his quote unquote definition of, of privatization of, of, of the VA. Um, cause he's going to go up there and say, you know, he doesn't support privatization is my guess. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then, um, you know, how much control is he one of the other questions that's being thrown out there is how much control will he have internally there was this notion that dr david shulkin had to some degree uh uh, obtained a va that that moved into fractures uh there were different camps we were calling uh we were were joking there were as you recall there were the shulkinites and the (laughs) You know, so sounds like
1: something from an awful history class. The Shulkinites.
4: But, 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 but the notion here was that there were actual political appointees within uh, Shulkin's administration um, who were actually at odds with him, directly opposing him, potentially feeding information to the media to directly undermine him. I think all those things are actually true. Um, And, and, and so, you know, is he going to have that same problem? Is he going to have that same problem if he, you know, is somewhat at odds with where the administration mm-hmm. stands on on what they want to do in terms of veteran policy?
1: We're speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets, a good organization working to get as many veterans as they can on both sides of the aisle involved in politics via their fellowships as well as keeping veterans apprised of what's going on out there. We only have about a minute and a half left, but as you just mentioned, David Shulkin, interesting opinion piece that he wrote talking about how the VA could actually use more competition. That sounds almost like uh, he's promoting more privatization of the VA. Of course, one of the things people say he was removed for was not being for privatized. In the right way, or whatever. Uh, in the last minute here, were you surprised to see this op-ed come out from him on basically saying, like, yeah, there should be more competition for the VA?
4: Yeah, it, it was an interesting piece. I mean, I think uh, to some degree, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a stab at trying to stay relevant in the larger conversation. Um, but you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's unfair to categorize uh, Dr. David Shulkin as someone who wasn't, um, who, who believed that. That, that, that the solution for VA was only VA oriented. Mm. I, I don't think that that was ever the case, but I, I do think he realized that it was impossible to provide the best possible healthcare outcomes to veterans by simply privatizing everything. So I think in his piece, what he's really highlighting here is that, you know, there is room for private sector healthcare in VA services. And in fact, that can help drive innovation within you know, the VA within the VA. VA can learn from some of the services that the private sector is providing and if they're providing better services at a lower cost, we can use those services and we can use them to make ourselves better. So I think at the end of the day, his point is there is room, the middle ground is where we really should be focused and how do we create best healthcare outcomes for veterans.
1: We've been speaking with Justin Brown, founder and CEO of HillVets. Justin, if people want to find out more about HillVets, where do they go to do so?
4: They go to Twitter and they find us at HillVets, and uh, <laughs> you can find us at hillvets.org. You've stopped making that at Twitter mistake, and it's it's
1: so disappointing to me. You're <laughs> listening to the Morning Briefing. We're going to talk to Gary Augustine, executive director of Disabled American Veterans, about the new legislation affecting Blue Water Navy Vietnam veterans exposed to Agent Orange. We'll be back right after this.
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day.
0: Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets.
1: Welcome back to the morning briefing, Tuesday edition, June 26th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. JQs is your producer, and connectingvets.com is your website. And we mean that. Created by Vets. For vets, ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms. Audio, you're listening to me right now, so clearly you know that we have that. Articles, yeah, fantastic ones. News like the sad news that Richard Harrison is a Navy veteran and the old man on the TV show Pawn Stars has passed away at the age of 77. Also, some better news, like a World War II veteran being awarded the Medal of Honor 73 years after his actions, and as we already talked about this morning, how commissary shopping may be opening up to non-retiree veterans in order to make up for a 20% shortfall that's happened over the last few years for DECA. That is... Comf- that Content and so much more is available for you at connectingvets.com. And if you follow us on social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, you will be able to live your best veteran life with just a little click of the mouse or tap on your phone. Our next guest is heading up an organization that does, for my money, More for disabled and wounded warriors than any other organization in this country. I'm speaking of disabled American veterans, and now their executive director, Gary Augustine, joins us once again on The Morning Brief. And Gary, good morning. How are you doing today?
5: Good morning. Thank you. Very kind words. We appreciate it.
1: Of course, Gary, we have you on today for a specific reason. Usually when we have Gary Augustine on is to talk to him about very good news or very bad news relating to the disabled veteran community. Today, we have some good news coming out of Congress with legislation being passed that affects Blue Water Navy Vietnam veterans afflicted by Agent Orange. Gary, what can you tell us about this legislation that just went through last night?
5: Well, it went through the House. It still has uh, a process to get through the Senate and and passed, so we aren't uh, there yet. But uh, what came out of the House is an expansion for Blue Water Navy veterans, veterans that uh, served on ships um, approximately 12 nautical miles by latitude and longitudinal uh, determination off the coast of Vietnam. Uh, and by the way, that uh, boundary or that barrier uh, was very uh, contentious as to what to determine how far out those ships uh, could be before that presumption would take effect. So that went back and forth for uh, months, I believe, debating that and they finally came up with this uh, this line of uh, demarcation ships uh, on the other side of the or inside of that line, those uh, Navy veterans will be eligible for all the presumptions that are now considered uh, Agent Orange presumptions. That would include chronic B-cell leukemia, diabetes mellitus, Hodgkin's disease, ischemic heart disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Parkinson's disease, peripheral neuropathy, prostate cancer, multiple myeloma, respiratory cancers, and soft tissue sarcomas. So we are uh, encouraged, and we think uh, that it's uh, moving in a very positive direction. Now that the House passed it, And we're looking forward to working with the Senate to to finalize it.
1: Gary, I think the question that pops into most people's minds, well, one of many questions on this issue is, if we have Navy veterans who are not within that line of demarcation that you talked about, but we're suffering from the same illnesses that we know are affiliated with Agent Orange exposure, why has it taken over 40 years to get to this issue and get it to the point where it's gotten now? Why has it taken so long?
5: Well, uh, Everything is a process in the government. And uh, we continue to push for uh, legislation that will treat veterans, all veterans, fairly. But it takes a long time. It took a long time to get the first uh, round of presumptions. Uh, and then we continue to fight for uh, expansion. Uh, there was a C-130 uh, uh, veterans who uh, served on uh, those planes that... Uh, Uh, transported the Agent Orange, we finally got uh, some additional benefits for them. This uh, expansion will include Blue Water Navy, and there are some other things that are included in it. But uh, it takes a long time to get legislation passed uh, to get the Congress to understand the significance of uh, what veterans are exposed to and what their residual effects are. It's not an easy process.
1: It's not an easy process, but doesn't it seem like this one has taken longer than... Can you think of anything else that took four decades of people knowing that it was an issue, people uh, basically lobbying for these changes to happen? Can you think of anything else that's had uh, a similar life as far as getting uh, to the point where we are now?
5: Not in my 30 years, but I'm sure my predecessors at the DAV could probably tell you there were other issues uh, when, uh, you know, we've been around since 1920, so... We've been fighting for veterans benefits ever since uh, 1920, and just to get uh, things established uh, right off the bat and get uh, a Department of Veterans Affairs. all of those things took many, many years. but in my 30 years, this is the longest one uh, that uh, took to get.
1: Yeah, to get to this point, absolutely. So when we talk about this Blue Water Navy Agent Orange issue, do we have a ballpark figure of how many people uh, were affected and of those, how many people are still around that are dealing with these illnesses that may have developed from it?
5: I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe there is about 90,000 veterans that uh, would be considered um, exposed now as far as the uh blue water ones i'll have to get back to you on that i don't have a sure sure figure off top of my head
1: not a problem um when it comes to the issues that these veterans are facing will this legislation as you said it's gotten through the house still has to get through the senate so great news but it's not done yet Will this legislation make it a simple process for veterans who were afflicted by these illnesses, who were exposed to Agent Orange outside of that line of demarcation? Will it make it easy for them? I mean, how streamlined is this process going to be if this does get through?
5: I mean, within that line of demarcation. Right, 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 yes. Yeah. So uh, it should be uh, much easier because that's what presumption is all about. All you have to do is prove that you served on the ship. It was within that line of demarcation. And uh, the presumption will be granted. Uh, That's uh, the beauty of presumptive conditions. You don't have to prove uh, more than the fact that you were there and that you were exposed because of being on that ship within that uh, demarcated line.
1: What has been the response to the recent movement that we've seen on this issue, which has seemed, you know, it's something that's been in discussion for a very long time, and we've seen a lot of movement on it recently, and now looks like you might be nearing the finish line on this. What's been the response from the community, specifically from the Vietnam veterans within DAV?
5: Very excited. I mean, not only this, but the caregiver expansion just was passed. So uh, we are uh, feeling pretty good about the movement on these conditions that have been stagnant for years um, or these benefits that have been stagnant for years. Uh, There's a great deal of excitement that this is long overdue and that it is something that should be uh, expedited as quickly as possible to get this thing done. So uh, we're going to our convention in a couple weeks in Reno, and I can tell you that uh, everyone there is anxiously uh, hoping that this will be done by that time so that when we can get there we can talk about what the next steps are. There is a um, payment uh, paygo situation that is being considered uh, that will increase our funding fee uh, for home loans uh, and we are uh, trying to work with congress to uh, I mean we're not necessarily supportive of the way they're paying for this but Uh, That's what is coming out of the legislation, and uh, we're going to try and work with uh, the Senate to try to uh, mitigate that as much as possible.
1: When it made it through the House, Gary, and we're speaking with Gary Augustine, Executive Director of Disabled American Veterans, about legislation that would help navy veterans blue water navy veterans from vietnam who were exposed to agent orange and have developed the illnesses associated with that chemical gary now that we're at this point it got wide bipartisan support within the house of representatives how confident are you that it's going to make it through the senate or do you not even want to jinx it
5: <laughs> i think uh, you're accurate i i hate to count any chickens before they're hatched in the congress but um we're feeling pretty good about this. Uh it's been a long uh, road. Uh, Chairman Rowe was uh, uh very good at, along with uh um, uh leader Waltz very good about working out the uh, specifics to get this thing done. So uh we believe that uh, the Senate will do the same. But uh fingers crossed. I mean, I've been around long enough to realize that uh, you never count on things until the the paper's signed.
1: There are a lot of things that you just mentioned that have happened recently where we've seen uh, the extension of uh, caregiver benefits to pre-9-11 veterans who were, uh, were wounded, injured, uh, became ill, all these different things that, that afflict so many veterans. Now we're seeing movement on the Blue Water Navy Agent Orange issue that's been an issue for so long. How many other things are on DAV's radar legislatively that you think uh, we have the possibility to get changed in the next uh, year or two, essentially?
5: Well, I think even though the Caregiver Expansion and uh, the Mission Act were passed, the devil's in the details. So we still have to work uh, with the uh, Congress and with the VA in the development and implementation of these uh, new uh, benefits. So even though it passed the uh, Congress and it's been signed by the President and Blue Water will be the same, uh, you still want to make sure that the implementation is done correctly and fairly. Now, with Blue Water, uh, I believe uh, being at presumptions, uh, that's going to be an easier situation because if you manifest the condition and you were uh, within the uh, required uh, eligibility areas, then you're going to be granted the benefit. But the caregivers, and uh, especially the caregivers, the development of the eligibility and uh, the criteria and How to pay for it is all going to be uh, debated uh, and worked out very uh, uh, explicitly over the next uh, six months to a year. So we're going to have to work hard to make sure that it gets developed and implemented properly. Women veterans issues are uh, other issues that uh, we are making sure that we continue to push. We have a new uh, update on our women veterans report. Uh, that came out a couple of years ago. We will put, be putting out the update uh, probably in September. That'll talk about a number of other issues that we think need to be considered for women veterans. Uh, but yeah, we've got a lot on our plate right now to make sure that uh, even the ones that have been passed are done properly and implemented properly.
1: We've been speaking to Gary Augustine, Executive Director of Disabled American Veterans, and Gary. As we finish up here talking about this Blue Water Navy Agent Orange exposure issue, I know DAV has been working hard on this for a long time. Who are some other people that you'd like to shine a spotlight on who've been, uh, you know, a big part of getting us to this point with this legislation, where uh, you know the Senate and the President are the only two steps to go for it? Who, who's been who's been helpful to you guys on this?
5: Oh yeah, you know, we call ourselves the Big Six uh, because we all have service programs, and uh, we are veterans organizations that offer services to veterans. So the Vietnam Veterans of America, obviously, have been up front on this. VFW, American Legion, uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America, uh, uh, AMVETS, uh, all of uh, those groups uh, have been very involved in pushing this legislation. And one of the things that is great about the veteran community is that we all work very hard together. Even though sometimes our constituencies have different priorities, when it comes to these kind of uh, issues, we all work hard together. And together, we represent, you know, more than five or six million members plus their family uh, members. So Congress takes notice to that when we come forth.
1: Gary, this is a fantastic example of what the veteran organizations can get done, of course, including their membership, including all veterans. When we work together to address an issue, it doesn't matter if it's something that's very recent or something that's from 40 years ago. We can get a lot done when we all pull in the same direction, can't we?
5: Absolutely. And I think more than now than ever. We've been uh, united. Uh, just in the letter that we did to support the caregivers uh, issue, we had 38 organizations that signed on to that letter. That's a great example of uh, the veteran community coming together and pushing uh, issues uh, as a force, a multiplier force.
1: It certainly is. Well, Gary Augustine, Executive Director of Disabled American Veterans, has been our guest here on this Tuesday edition of the Morning Briefing. Gary, if people want to find out more about DAV, if they want to get involved, maybe becoming one of those amazing drivers that DAV has to get veterans to their appointments, where do they go to find out about the organization?
5: Online, of course, www.dav.org. And I just want to say you've been a great uh, resource for us and a great opportunity to get the word out about these issues. So I want to thank you and your program for doing all that you do to help veterans around the country.
1: Well, Gary, we appreciate that. And, of course, an open invitation for you and your organization. Anytime you guys have something you want to talk about, you know you're welcome here at EntercomsConnectingVets.com and, of course, on the morning briefing. Gary, thank you so much and hope you have a great rest of your day. And good luck on getting this through the Senate and then on to the president's desk and signed. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Again, our thanks to Gary Augustine, not for coming on the show so much, but for the amazing work that he and his organization, DAV, are doing for veterans. As I just mentioned, and Jonathan Copanger, Connecting Vets, Ace VA reporter, is now in studio with us. DAV, I think they're, they're... probably their most visible thing that they do and one of the most amazing things that they do they have volunteer drivers that bring veterans disabled veterans veterans who can't drive mm-hmm. veterans who who can but don't have a car they pick them up and get them to their VA appointments free wow. of charge which is huge it's something that honestly before I was a veteran I wasn't aware of and then I got when I moved when I moved to Long Island I started getting, um, after I went to check in at the VA there, these letters from DAV saying, like, hey, if you ever need a ride to your appointment, you just go ahead and give us a call. And it was like, wow. That's
0: do they awesome. do that everywhere?
1: Yeah, everywhere. DAV is willing to do that. If you are a veteran and you need to get to appointments at the VA hospital, uh, I think some of them even do appointments at other places, but don't uh-huh. quote me on that. Just contact your local DAV or DAV National and they'll put you in touch. And they have, you know, you'll you'll see DAV vans around VA hospitals constantly. They're just constantly <laughs> driving. And it's volunteers for the most part who are just out there wanting to help, wanting to do that, uh, do what they can to give back to veterans. It's really an amazing organization. And then, of course, on the legislative side. What they've done with this uh, Blue Water Navy Agent Orange exposure yeah. issue that we just talked to Gary about is huge. The extension of the caregiver benefits to pre-9-11 veterans. But as he said, it's not done even when legislation like the caregiver extension gets through. Devil is in the details, Gary said. you got to look at where the money's coming from. you got to figure out how they're going to implement it. Make sure it's done in the proper way. So anyway, DAV.org. If you haven't checked them out, you absolutely should. And if you're someone, maybe you're a retiree, Maybe you've made millions of dollars uh, in the plastic silverware market. I don't know. Whatever you did to make your money and you've got some time. Volunteer to be a driver for DAV. You know what? It's it's one of those little things you can do to give back to uh, some people who really did a lot for this country. Absolutely. We're talking about those World War II veterans, Korea War veterans, Vietnam veterans who are not capable of driving right now, not able to drive, still need to get to their appointments. You could do that, maybe make some friends along the way. So I highly recommend uh, uh, checking that out. If you, if you have the time and the desire, go ahead and do it. As I mentioned, Jonathan is our crack VA reporter, holding the VA accountable for all their things that they're doing. A few seconds ago,
0: I was the ace reporter. Now I'm the crack
1: reporter. As it goes, it's kind of going down. Listen, yeah. Jonathan Copanger is kind of a reporter. (laughs) Jonathan Copanger is kind of... Jonathan Copanger is a bit of a reporter, I guess, question mark. Um, Jonathan, of course, does amazing work looking at what's going on over at the VA, along with other things. He doesn't only do the VA. One of the other things that you do that kind of includes the VA as well as some other things is the benefits in my backyard segment. Now, as Jake and I were talking the other day about these, these bimbies, as some people call them for short, which... sounds to me just wrong a little it's bit
0: close to bimbo but yeah a little fine.
1: bit like a himbo or what's a bimby it's, it's there's something about it that just doesn't sit right with me and i think i just figured it out but i'm not going to say it on air this will be for when we leave the studio a question that came up and then i actually had a friend ask mm-hmm. my friend is from rhode island he was okay. like hey when does rhode island get one of those benefits in my backyard things Here's the thing. There's like 75 people that live in Rhode Island. Yeah. All of them have a horrible accent. Um, <laughs> of course, just kidding. Uh, the how does the Bimby, the benefits in my backyard decision making process work? I know you just did Minnesota. Like, yeah. who's up next? Do we know?
0: I have to look at my list. But what all I did was I took um, a list from the VA and, and separated the states, and I went by how many veterans are in the state. So I started with California, which has the most. And then the last one, I forget what the last one is. Um it's Delaware? way down the list. No, Delaware, it's Rhode not Island. But Delaware is the one interesting state that doesn't have a lot of benefits for veterans. Huh. Um and this that's the weirdest thing that I found about this, is is it's there's no of course it is state, so there's no rhyme or reason to it. Right. But like the one I just did for Minnesota, they have this really cool benefit for um that they will give you money for dental issues.
1: Yeah, which we saw that and Jake and I were talking about the story the other day. I think it may have actually been yesterday. And that's something that the VA doesn't do dental care
0: not really no pretty
1: much not at all unless you have a dental issue that was caused by your service yeah. and you can verify that which <laughs> good luck doing that listen <laughs> eating a lot of ice cream at the ice cream bar on the ship <laughs> and candy like that's that's not service related that's you being having a horrible diet and rotting away your teeth so the VA just doesn't have I mean, most VA hospitals don't even have much of a dental facility because there are so few people that they provide dental care for. So seeing that the state of Minnesota actually has a way to provide, uh, it's basically – the way that it read anyway and maybe you can clarify this kind of like a grant for dental stuff like yeah. if you need it it's available there for you if you can't afford it otherwise
0: absolutely and they'll do I didn't include this in the BIMBY, but it was um if you need dentures they'll give you three thousand dollars for that if you Ooh. need um like uh, root canals things like that they'll give you I think up to two thousand dollars for that hmm. and they do the same thing for glasses as well it's it's less than than the dentist thing but they they do that as well
1: which is those are benefits that listen for people who have good insurance they probably don't think about too much or like who cares? Mm-hmm. Just go get a root canal and Give them 20 bucks or whatever I give them as a copay. That's a significant thing for people who don't have full benefits at work. Someone who's working part-time, as many retirees do, where they have a part-time job and you know they're tri-care may cover right. dental and that stuff, but it doesn't cover everything. It's it's important to know about these things. And as we've found, I think, from some of the response to the benefits in my backyard segment. There's a lot of people who have no idea about these benefits that are available to them in their home state. Is that kind of the goal of the whole series?
0: Yeah, because um, the VA, of course, is is this big, powerful thing which will push out all the different benefits that they have. But the state um, veterans associations, they don't – are veterans bureaus, they don't have all the money that the VA has. And they get some money from the VA, but they're right. very different, and they're, they're their own entity. And so they – uh, uh, what I've found, and I think most people should do, is if you're looking for something from the VA, you need to check with your state as well and mm-hmm. see what you can use with that. Because there are certain programs that you could use in conjunction with the state not or with the, with the federal. But not every state does this. I know um, Minnesota, if, with education, they do um, – as soon as your federal uh, GI Bill runs out, you can just slip right into uh, one that the state has. And you can't do it with it, but you can – as soon as it runs out, you can. Then there are other states, and I forget which ones they are, but they actually have where you can use some of the state education benefits in conjunction with your federal benefits, which will help take care of more things. So it really it depends on where you are and and just how many veterans and how loud the veterans are in the state, I believe.
1: We're speaking with Jonathan Kopanger, one of our reporters here at ConnectingVets.com, who does an amazing segment called Benefits in My Backyard, which if you haven't checked it out yet, listen, if your state is not on that list yet it's going to be eventually as we just found out it goes by veteran population in the states i'm still wondering exactly how many uh, like who's the smallest is it one of the dakotas maybe you might think that i think because it's dc oh well they're not a state
0: well technically
1: no. there's 50 states and washington dc <laughs> is not one of them i know because i see signs for shadow senators and stuff <laughs> as i drive home every day um you know you may think sometimes like north dakota south dakota there are not a lot of people that live there, Wyoming, small population. Mm-hmm. However, the percentage of veterans and the number of yeah. veterans, oftentimes in those places, with some ex- exceptions, of course, like in the Dakotas, you've got the uh, the oil fields and the natural gas fields out there. But uh, for people looking for work, oftentimes for an 18-year-old, one of the best options is going into the military. It's yeah. also an option to kind of see something other than North Dakota or South Dakota, you know, and get out of there. So that's not always uh, the way it goes. And that's why some of the lower populated states like Alaska and South Dakota, dakota are actually ranked higher for veterans programs and, yeah, care and things like that cap what's been the most surprising thing that you've found thus far in the benefits in my backyard
0: segment is it that dental money in minnesota because that's a pretty big one i would say that that's high up there but really delaware is the one is the one state that and i haven't done the full bimby i've just done a little smart uh, small brief on on delaware but there's not a lot for veterans and it, it's huh. it's just odd that you would think I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's one of the original 13 colonies. You think, OK, they're going to be really good with this. you got a big
1: military base there. Dover. There's not a lot. Not a lot. There's 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 a military population in Delaware. It's a small state. Small states often have. Well, it's it's one or the other. It's kind of feast or famine. They either have a great ability to do things for the population or yeah. they're low on money and they don't have a lot to do. Although most of the small states are in the northeast just because of you know the founding of our country and the way things worked out rhode island connecticut massachusetts delaware mm-hmm. all these small states are up in the northeast and you know there are benefits great benefits like in my home state of connecticut now just like in texas you can go to a state school for free yeah. if you're a veteran so that's a huge one that's one that most people should know about they might not know about it but they should know about it there are all these smaller things that people don't know about and that's where benefits in my backyard can really come in whether it's Finding out that, oh, hey, I can get access to the state parks at a discounter for free. Or there's some great educational or medical benefit. All that stuff is available through Benefits in My Backyard. And, of course, you can find that at ConnectingVets.com. And you can also find us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You've been listening to The Morning Briefing, Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. On behalf of myself, producer Jake Hughes, and Jonathan Copanger, who was kind enough to join us for this final segment, we want to thank all of our guests today. And, boy, what a busy show it was. Chef Andre. Ray Rush. You should definitely check him out on social media. Uh, you might be able to find a picture of he and I flexing our similarly sized biceps yesterday mm. when he stopped by. Very yeah. similar. Yes. I'm not delusional. Stop saying <laughs> things like that. Stop saying and thinking things like that. I can feel it. Uh, of course, also Justin Brown of Hillvets and Gary Augustine, Executive Director of DAV. We'll be back with the Wednesday show tomorrow. We are going to have Tori Scotty, Navy veteran and personal trainer, is going to talk fitness, and we're also going to have the American Legion in studio. Big day coming up. Thank you very much for